Cable Smith, welcoming everybody into episode 21 of Campfire Conversations. Today, I'll be joined by Ducks Unlimited Chief Waterfowl Scientist, Dr. Mike Brasher. Um, so much to get into concerning Ducks Unlimited's season in review and the uh, midwinter waterfowl survey. That's something relatively new. I think it's only been around two years. And Mike will give us some more information on that. But, you know, we haven't had the federal waterfowl survey the past two years due to COVID. That was completely canceled in 2020 and 2021. So what's going on with our waterfowl populations? Who the hell knows? (laughs) Ducks Unlimited hopefully has um, at least an idea based off of these uh, midwinter surveys. And we'll talk about how they're working with state wildlife agencies to, you know, possibly get a handle on what our waterfowl trends are looking like going forward. Um, Concerning stuff for me personally, just because the last two seasons have been the worst I've ever seen in Texas down here at the tail end of the Central Flyway. Maybe Mike has uh, some insight as to why that is. Of course, I will press him on shortstopping, a.k.a duck farming as well, something that nobody really wants to talk about, but that certainly exists. Uh, So we'll uh, we'll press him on that. Um, But uh, just in general, we'll talk all things waterfowl trends. And uh, if your season sucked, like mine, why was that? Maybe he, uh, he can shed some insight into what's going on in your flyway as well. So without further ado... Uh, let's go ahead and take a listen to our conversation. Well, Mike, welcome back to the show, man. It's great to visit with you. Yeah, it's good to be back with you. Absolutely. So first thing, and we've we've had you on over the years multiple times. I always enjoy our conversations. Um, you've got some wooden decoys back there in the office, which look pretty cool. I see a, yeah. a canvas back. And, yeah. Uh, is, that, what is, is that an old squall or a long-tailed duck over there? It is a long-tailed duck. <clears throat> it's a it's a du uh, one of one of our du commemorative decoys from a few years back. That canvasback duck, uh, the canvasback decoy there was actually carved. It's sort of a cork body. It was carved by a um, pretty well-known waterfowl bi- biologist, uh, Frank Baldwin, up in Manitoba. I actually bought that one. I bought it for my dad actually back around 97 or 1998 when I was uh, working one summer at uh, Delta Marsh, the Delta Field Station there in Delta, Manitoba. And, you know, it's that classic, it's one of those classic Delta style canvas backs, um, really something of that, close to it. And and then, of course, there's a Charles Job's um, pintail over there. So, yeah, a few decoys back there. Yeah, I haven't. Uh, I've never done that trip, but it's on the list uh, to head up to uh, Chesapeake Bay area and uh, do the 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 waterfowl. Whether you do the sea duck hunts or you know you're hunting, I guess there's a lot of river hunting there too. Um, but lots yeah. of canvas backs, and I really want to get a. I still always just call them uh, old squall, but I know maybe that's not yeah. PC these days. Um, yeah. And then to go to the decoy carving museums and eat crab cakes and fried oysters for breakfast you know i want to take all that in yeah there's nothing wrong with that you know i've never hunted on the um on the east coast anywhere i've i've and and to be honest i don't have a whole lot of experience even traveling to many of those areas i've been to a few south carolina um maryland a few places like that but uh not not extensive travel in that part of the world Mm -hmm. i'd like to how was your season in the uh, Atlantic Flyway? Well, uh, so are you in the Mississippi? I'm in, yeah, I'm in Memphis. I'm here at our national headquarters in in Memphis. Uh, so Mississippi Flyway, and I grew up in Mississippi, and so where we are now is only about two hours from where I grew up. Uh-huh. 
So this year, I took the opportunity to spend a lot of time trying to get to know the places where I get, uh, get to know the places I used to hunt a little bit better, um, or at least refamiliarize myself with them because things change, you know, like 15, 20 years since you spend a lot of time in that particular set of wetlands and, and things change. A few new beaver dams show up mm -hmm. and change the, the hydrology, change where the wetlands are and change water levels and so forth. Uh, so I was able to get out actually quite a few times this year. Uh, I hunted somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 or 25 times, um, different days, which is, is, um, better than average for me. Um, and so, yeah, it was very good in that regard for me to be able to find time to do that. I, I hunted in Michigan, Lake St. Clair with a friend in October, uh, went over to Arkansas a couple of times. So I was able to do a little bit of hunting in other locations, but here in, uh, here in Mississippi or where I hunted most of the time in Mississippi, it was slow. I hunt in, in the backwaters of Grenada Lake. It's a flood control reservoir in north central Mississippi, Corps of Engineer property. And there's a lot of, um, you could call them semi-natural wetlands. I say semi-natural because uh, they were created back in uh, largely the result of some dredging of some rivers back in the 50s or 60s or I'm not sure exactly on the dates of that but anyway combination of dredging of some rivers and putting up some spoil to hold some that, that held water back and then beavers come in and change things and dam up some of those drainages and so i'm hunting mostly some flooded timber uh, scrub shrub and then some sort of semi-permanent um, emergent wetlands, um, not great food resources in any of those, but you know, they'll, they'll hold their share of ducks. This year was really slow though. Very, very slow. Um, yeah, this it, year for us was, uh, the second slowest I've ever seen. Um, of course, last year was the worst I've ever seen <laughs> and I'm 40. I've been duck hunting 20, 20 years. And uh, I only went, this is the least number of times I've ever gone. I went eight times. Oh. I had a few really good hunts, but it wasn't because, I mean, I, I weighed the option. I was like, well, take my son deer hunting or take him to sit and watch the sun come up because we know there's no damn ducks. You know, it yeah. was kind of like, yeah. I would rather go duck hunting yeah. uh, personally and be with, you know, it was a more social sport. And then the yeah. dogs are always, you know, they always tug at my heartstrings. I'd much rather hunt with a dog than be sitting in a blind by myself not that that's yeah. i love doing that too yeah but if i had to be honest i'd be like yeah. give me the action of a, of a duck hunt um so yeah i spent more time deer hunting this year and uh and i hope that that's not the case next year you know i hope that it's more of a 50 50 split instead of like 90 10 or whatever yeah. it was yeah last year was it was a bit of the reverse for me i guess between these two years last year i duck hunted very few times i deer hunted mostly last year uh last year what would have been uh, 20 and 21 um, weather patterns were it was just so warm so stale for for us throughout the season yeah uh, that that I just I didn't hunt hardly at all I duck hunted very few times would have been last year but this year but that I, was dictated by the conditions not because you didn't want to go duck hunting oh, it was, I mean same well as that's right like, right yeah it's yeah. just uh, it's been uh, rough but, man yeah and, and so this year December was was rather terrible i guess in a word for us here and across much of the eastern u.s because it was just it was record warm i mean it was it was i was really worried whenever um i saw how december was unfolding and having recalled some of the predictions long-range forecast for what this winter might might hold you know given that we were going into a or in the in a la nina weather pattern climate pattern that's typically not great for Southern hunters. It typically means dry and, and warm. And those two things in combination are horrible for us. And that's exactly what we had in December. So I was really down in the dumps on that, thinking that maybe that was going to extend into, into January and then that, boom, there goes the season. Mm -hmm. But fortunately, January uh, was different. Uh, it was at least cold. May not have been as, may not have gotten as much rain as we would have liked to have, but we definitely got some colder weather here, at least where I hunted. So that made it much more enjoyable. Um, if it weren't 
for wood ducks, locally produced wood ducks in North Mississippi for me this year, it would have been really slow. Um, yeah, that part of the state actually uh, saw some pretty frequent rains throughout the summer of last year and into the fall, spring and summer. It got pretty wet a couple of different times in this you know, fairly small geographic area. But the wood ducks responded. They produced a lot of uh, a lot of young, and I saw the direct results of that. Um, I don't think there was. It might have been one or two days where I got skunked, but I could at least count on a wood duck or two or three. Uh, and then had a few mallards show up every now and then in January once the weather pattern pattern started to change. And the good thing about those is that when those new mallards showed up, they decoyed beautifully. Decoy, some of the best I decoy mallards... birds that I have ever that I have ever experienced are just amazing. Uh-huh. Yeah, but there weren't many of them. Now I'm I'm no, that, I thought they went extinct. To be honest with you, <laughs> there's, still, there's still some out there. There's still some out there. But no, literally, we shot a th- I think we shot three on the last weekend of the season, and those are the first ones that we had seen other mallards, and those are the first ones that came in and, yeah. and lit into the decoys, like like the good boys that they were. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, other than that, I mean, we shot a, the usual mixed bag of widgeon and gray ducks. And I always call the, the Gadwall, the Texas waterfowler's best friend because they're, they're easy to decoy and they're in abundance and their numbers keep going up. So, uh, and they taste good. So, yeah, nothing wrong with the Gadwall. Nothing wrong. Yeah. But that, that is the one thing that I did not see much of where I hunted. I saw very few shovelers. I saw very few Gadwall. I saw very few. You know, it was either it was either mallards and wood ducks or wood ducks, and, and and that was it. That was the really weird thing about most of my hunts this year, at least in Mississippi. So yeah, so it sounds like you had a a similar season. It was just uh, and our seasons last year completely mirror each other, just dismal. Um, I don't. My fear in being at the tail end of the Central Flyway is that like duck hunting is going to become this destination thing to where if you really want to get into ducks i just have to go to kansas twice a year and treat it more like um something like, i like to to go three times a week ideally yeah. <laughs> you know um i don't want it to turn into that but i think there's a lot of factors we can discuss today that are you know grounds for that train of thought um let's talk about the midwinter waterfowl survey synopsis and uh du's season and review is that available now for the general public? Uh, it will be very soon. If it's not available by the time this airs, I don't, I don't know when this episode is going to air, but if it's not available by this uh, at this time, it will be very soon, and we'll be promoting it on our social media, our different social media platforms. Uh, it will be, uh, yeah, it, 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 we'll have a website where people can go and, and read the report. I think they can probably download the, we'll be able to download the report in the form of a PDF. We also have sort of a companion podcast episode uh, that covers many of the same topics. We call it our 2021-22 waterfowl season in review. It's, if if folks aren't familiar with the Ducks Unlimited podcast, you can can find it through all the major podcast platforms. And it's one of the uh, is one of the most recent episodes that we've released. I think we've it was sort of mid Februarys when that came out. But yeah, I would encourage folks if they're interested to kind of hear our take on it. Um, look for that information from either of those two different sources: website, social, or three, I guess, website, social media platforms, or else our podcast. Um, but uh, yeah, we can we can talk about that midwinter. So- so generally speaking, what what is that? Define that for our, for our audience. Sure, uh, I appreciate uh, the the question, the opportunity to explain that maybe a little bit more. And this started, uh, I guess, last year, and it's at, at least in terms of something that we're producing. It's a report. It's like sixteen pages. Uh, I guess that includes the front and back cover. But anyway, sixteen pages, nice little document. And every year, as we get into January late January, even in December in some places, people start contacting us 
or in casual conversations, people want to know how the waterfowl season is going across the country. How's, how's folks out west doing? How's Atlantic Flyway doing? And so every year we kind of found ourselves in this situation where we would have to sort of all of us have to um, develop some impromptu responses to those questions and develop some synopses of, of what we were hearing and so forth. And a couple of years ago, I thought to myself, you know, it'd be nice if we could get out in front of this a little bit more and and especially if we could pull together some information, some data uh, to sort of depict what we think is or what has gone on with regard to the various environmental conditions that we all know have an effect on waterfowl uh, abundance and distribution and then also influences hunter success. So so that's what I, I started doing last year. It was the first time we pulled this together. It's a, it's a report where we, we pull maps, pull data from various other websites, uh, NOAA. Um, it, you can get all sorts of weather data these days, right? And you can map it and show how it compares to long-term averages and so forth. Ice cover on the Great Lakes, snow cover on any given day. And you can begin to pull together some empirical information on, on all those different things. And so that's what this is. It's a, 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 a summary of different environmental factors and how they played out over the months of September through January. Uh, we provide a little commentary behind those maps and patterns. We also include some references to what we've been hearing from our different partners and members and other and hunters from, from across each of the four flyways. It's mainly a, a US centric document. And we also so that separates it from like our spring nesting counts. That's that's right. Yeah, this is yeah. well, we do include at the very outset of this report, we've, we've uh, we orient the reader to the previous breeding season, because that's where it all begins. And we'll come back to that relates to, to one thing that you mentioned a, a minute ago with regard to waterfowl hunting being sort of a destination activity, um, something worth reminding folks of, of in, uh, in that particular idea. But yeah, we start out with a reflection on breeding habitat conditions this past year in the, in the previous summer. Going forward, hopefully we will, well, going forward eventually, and hopefully it begins this year, we will be able to speak to breeding population survey numbers and not just have to look at drought maps as indices of habitat conditions and speak anecdotally about what we think the population was and what we think productivity would have been and what the fall flight would have been, yada, yada. Uh, so going forward, we'll include some of their breeding population survey information, but then all the environmental conditions that are talked about in here, precipitation, stream flow, uh, temperature, snow cover, etc. That's mainly the fall and winter period that we're covering. And we just we tr try to provide some narrative that describes these general patterns. They're not definitive explanations for what happened. Um, because that's highly variable in space and time at all sorts of different scales. We also uh, pull in midwinter survey numbers from the states of the Central and Mississippi flyways. Those are in here, and we report what those are and how they how they compare I, to I recent found averages. So very interesting. So who's who's responsible for that? I mean, is Texas Parks and Wildlife doing that counting? I mean, Ducks Unlimited isn't counting these in no. every state. No, Ducks Unlimited does not participate in any of the midwinter surveys that I'm aware yeah. of. Those are all conducted by the uh, the states, the state okay. waterfowl biologists, their staff. Each of the states kind of makes their own, makes that decision of whether they participate in those surveys, whether they conduct them, how frequently they conduct them. But yes, in the case of Texas, it's the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department. They conduct that survey only once. That's uh, early January. All the states, I mean, the midwinter survey is designed so that all the participating states will be conducting a survey during the same week. It gives, in theory, a snapshot of the relative abundance of uh, and distribution of waterfowl within a very narrow window of time because all waterfowl hunters know that ducks and geese will move around the different areas and so you want to be uh, synchronizing as much yeah. as possible. Well, I think that snapshot's important because you said you used the word distribution. And like for me, I'm over here bitching about how we don't have any mallards in my neck of the woods. But I look up in Kansas and Nebraska and uh, they've got tons of them. So 
And typically January's my favorite month to hunt. You know, the colder it gets, the better. Wasn't so great this year. Of course, we had another freeze in February where all the ducks showed up after the season. Um, so let's talk about, I want to just mention Texas and uh, specifically Louisiana because I found it very, I don't want to say alarming, but just worth mentioning like that. Uh, and let me pull this document up here. You sent me the, the sneak peek. Um, but I think Texas Mallard numbers were down. Let's see. I have it right here. 47%, I believe. I'm Texas is down 47% on Mallards. Uh, I don't know if that's, I, I guess that's compared to the long-term average. That's compared to the most recent 10-year average. And okay. yeah, and, and there's a there's a lot of caveats that go along with, uh, with midwinter survey numbers. Um, I guess the most important being that it's a snapshot in time. And now, uh, talking to Kevin, I don't know if you've had him on your show yet or not, but we talked to him not, not too long after they conducted the survey. And, and prior to the survey, he was thinking that this year was going to be even lower than last year because if I remember correctly, Kevin was saying that Texas had turned off really, really dry. Once the season started, things really started to dry up in Texas. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you had sort of a scarcity of habitat for the ducks. Uh, and then also we had record warm December. Neither of those team, neither of those things are good for moving birds into, um, in, into Texas. Uh, now, fortunately, the weather changed right about the time that they were conducting that survey. And Kevin said that he noticed some uh, some new birds coming into the state, and that kind of uh, is probably what prevented this from being the, the lowest count on record. The other thing that I that I we need to remind folks of, and that's that's why we start this document with a reflection on the breeding population. Mm -hmm. If we don't have a large breeding population size, and if we don't have good production during the summer, we're not going to have a large fall flight. So that's what we tried to communicate about often last year. We knew that much of the Canadian prairie was in its second or third year of fairly severe drought. Now the Dakotas in the year prior, not last summer, but in 2020 were really wet and we know that they produced ducks in 2020. But last year, summer of 21 was the most widespread drought that many people, really everyone that we talked to could recall on the prairies mm. and that set the stage for what we were to see in the fall and that meant it set the stage for a lower than average fall flight we're not talking about lower than record we're talking about lower than average mm -hmm. when we say average that means that there's a lot of years where we're well above that number and then there's a lot of years where we're below that number right so we're lower than average we're down on the we're well below any of our recent record numbers. And so that's whenever we reflect on what we see over the past number of years, a lot of times we're remembering those record high years or the number of ducks that we're that we were seeing or counting. We're a long way from that right now. And so that is reflected in these numbers. These numbers like what like, percent like, of let's just say mallards, for example, are we below our long term average? Don't know. <laughs> I can't tell. I, I can tell you in the central. I can tell you for the midwinter survey. I can't tell you for the breeding population right. survey because as been conducted, at least in the mid-continent, uh, they conducted the breeding population survey in Alaska last year, and they were about average there. But birds from Alaska mainly go into the Pacific Flyway. Uh, central and Mississippi Flyway depend heavily upon the western boreal forest and the prairies of the U.S. and Canada, and we haven't conducted breeding population surveys. We, being the waterfowl management community, haven't conducted surveys there in two years. So we don't know what the breeding population size is. We can look at the models at the Fish Are we planning on having, having one this year? Everything that I've heard is that they are planning. They have, they have, um, they have all the paperwork in place. Uh, they have, I think, received the invitation from the Canadian, from the government of Canada to come into, into Canada because these are U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service pilots that are flying the planes. 
they have to receive permission to go into Canada and fly in the Canadian airspace. And so that's what happened the last well, last year, the Fish and Wildlife Service was ready to go last year. but the and Canadian, probably Jackass Trudeau was like, nope. Well, I'm not sure who was making, <laughs> I'm not sure who was making the decision other than it, it was higher. It was at a level higher than the Canadian Wildlife Service. Yeah. Uh, so U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service did not get authority approval to or an invitation to go into Canada last year. My understanding is that they have received that paperwork this year. There's as of about a month ago, the Fish and Wildlife Service was still trying to negotiate, trying to figure out how they were going to work around some of the provincial restrictions, but they were still planning and very optimistic that it was going to happen this year. I've not heard anything over the past few weeks to make me change my optimism. So nobody's going to spread COVID like a pilot sitting in an airplane. Well, yeah. So, so I'm certainly, we're all hopeful that that's going to happen this year. We'll know really soon. Uh, But back to your question with regard to how far down are we on on mallards, for the Central Mississippi Flyway, about the only thing that we have to go on at a large scale, we can talk about North Dakota survey numbers if you want, if we want to, I have to dig those up. But anyway, but if we look at midwinter survey numbers from this past year, Across the Mississippi and Central Flyways combined, mallards were 25% below average. Again, below average. Mm -hmm. So we're talking maybe 50% below some of our record high numbers. Um, And saying maybe somewhere in that 40, 50% below where we were even five or six years ago. Um, So, yeah, you didn't see a lot of mallards this past year over your decoys. Well, that shouldn't surprise you. A lot of that obviously has to do with the weather. Like that's a fact, hundred percent. Um, but in, in when you see of- states like Kansas up ninety-two percent, you see Missouri up twenty-five percent. I know that they're farming ducks in those states, um, and I'm, I'll let me be very clear. I don't blame them. I would do the same thing, right? If I could stop ducks there, and if I could keep water open and there's uh, corn everywhere, hell, I would do it in a heartbeat. And, and that's why I'm like, maybe I just need to go to Kansas to duck on a couple of years. Um, but you see their number, Kansas up 92%, Missouri up uh, 25%. Those are places, like I said, that are farming ducks. Then you look at Montana. They're not farming ducks in Montana, but yet Montana was up um, 64% on mallards. That to me probably is more of a weather trend thing uh, than anything else as far as Montana is concerned. But I've talked, I mean, I've talked to too many people. I've seen it firsthand going to Kansas. Like there's, it's big business keeping ducks around. You don't want them to leave. I understand that. Um, I don't know how, what like percentage wise, how much that is affecting the birds that end up at the end of the the central flyway or the Mississippi, like Louisiana down 92%. That's insane. Even on a warm year. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's no question that, that there was some- a tough one because people don't want to talk about it. People don't want to admit that it goes on and, and at, at what magnitude it's happening. And again, I don't know. Um, you might not know, but I think it's definitely worth mentioning. Yeah. It's, it's people are stopping ducks and, and they're doing a good job and they're only getting better at it. Well, you know, I'm not going to agree with, uh, with whether we're deliberately stopping ducks, um, or something of, of, characterized like that. What I will say and is that, yeah, people want to manage the habitat for, um, for, for their benefit. States do it, private landowners do it. Sure. And we have, you're right, you're exactly right, we have gotten better at it. Um, but other things have changed as well. And so the key question, and we really struggle to figure this out, to measure it at, at the scale and both the spatial scale and temporal scale that we need to, how have each of those things changed through times, through time? And that's something that I know a lot of people are trying to figure out is to look back through time. And, you know, the you, you described it as farming ducks. I think we're talking about flooding of unharvested corn would be my guess. Mm-hmm. The, key, the key question is not whether they're doing it. The key question is how has it changed through time? Are you, is it, has it expanded by 10%? Has it expanded by 50%? Has it stayed the same over time? 
I don't know the answers to those questions. And we're trying, there's a number of researchers, research efforts underway, trying to figure out how we can measure that from satellite imagery and other data sets. So we can kind of, so we can answer it with data saying, mm -hmm. yes, the landscape has changed in this way. And, you know, so yeah, in terms of the amount of food that we're putting on the landscape, the type of food, how it's being managed, Sure, those things change in some degree through time. There's also a lot of things that change outside the control of managers, and those things are what's really, uh, what, what are really difficult to figure out. Mm -hmm. um, let me ask you this, as far as duck production goes, when is the ideal time for rainfall, for precipitation that they need? Uh, and I know that, we're coming out of these these drought situations in the prairie pothole region, the Dakotas. Um, and so that might change year to year because you might already have a lot of existing water on the landscape from the previous year. But generally speaking, as a scientist, like when do we want to see that rain to for, for ducks to fulfill maximum nesting potential? Well, we what we like to see um, is wetlands that are available mm -hmm. whenever they get there you know they that's what because the first thing that happens whenever these waterfowl or ducks are flying back north is they have to make a decision on whether to settle whether to stop if wetlands are dry whenever they're going back north which is was the case last year in the dakotas and in the prairies of canada a lot of ducks kept on going probably flew into the boreal forest maybe into some maybe even as far as alaska but they went somewhere, they didn't stop, they don't hang out on dry wetlands. So you have to have water in place for birds to even settle to begin with. So let me kind of rephrase this, this, this question that you asked to say, given that we're coming out of a drought, what are the type of precipitation conditions that we've been looking for to help recover us from that drought? Mm -hmm. And so that's a multi-part multi answer I've talked to a colleague in Canada, Dr. Scott Stevens. We've have had him talk to us several times about this. And what you really want, you got it in some places, but not in others, is you going in, it starts in the fall. Like if you're in, if you're in drought in one summer, you want to start looking for uh, conditions to improve in the fall. And by improving conditions, the first thing that you would like to see is an increase in soil moisture. You would like to get some rain in late summer, some rain in the fall, so that it at least puts some soil or some moisture in the soil so that when temperatures finally turn cold, you get what they call a good frost seal. That means you basically got a, a frozen, frozen ground. And then what you want is a lot of snow over the course of winter. You want that snow to stick around. You want it to stay cold so that you don't let all that snow gradually evaporate over mm. the course of winter. And then you want a, you know, somewhat modest, uh, rapid thaw. So that those three things in combination, a good frost seal where the ground is essentially frozen, a lot of snow, and then a somewhat moderate rate of thaw, that will mean that most of that runoff from that melting snow will go into the wetlands. And I say a moderate rate of thaw because we don't want to, we don't want to cheer for a really rapid thaw because then if you get too much snow and too rapid of a thaw, then you're creating a lot of downstream flooding of communities and properties, and that's not a good thing either. But uh, so that's, it, it's not just one single thing that you need. It's a lot more it's complex one than single you time. would That's think. right. The yeah. prairie, prairie wetland hydrology is a really complicated thing within a given year, and it's really complicated when you look at it over the course of multiple uh, years and the fact that drought is needed to to periodically recharge those nutrients, recycle those nutrients, and return the productivity to those wetlands. So once the wetlands do fill with water again, that'll be, that'll be disproportionately good because it's those first few years when the productivity is, is first few years after refilling that the productivity is greatest. So, and kind of getting back to our, linking that back to our earlier discussion about duck numbers during fall and winter. One of the other things that we see with regard to the success of southern hunters, Texas, Louisiana, it really depends on a lot of young birds in the in the fall flight. 
So, you know, you, you, the comment about Kansas holding a lot of, uh, a lot of mallards, again, I, I'll, that's a snapshot in time. I don't know what Kansas's numbers were in mid-December. I don't know what they were the second week of January. I can well, tell you I, I can tell you our numbers there, were but... still bad. <laughs> so I have an idea. <laughs> and, and so, it gives me an idea of where they are. <laughs> yeah, and, and so the, the other thing, though, is that uh, the, there is an indication that, that the hunting success of those southern states is, heavily, is more heavily dependent upon a lot of young birds in the fall flight than the success uh, that that than those than the northern states um so yeah it's tough being on the, the southern end of a flyway because you, you need a lot of young birds and then you also need weather conditions uh, both in terms of snow cover temperature precipitation to to move them down now hunters in every other state will still point their finger at louisiana and texas and say yeah but you're Per hunter average is still higher than anyone else's so there's it's it's interesting that conversation is always interesting and, and of course to hunters in louisiana and texas you don't care what how your harvest compares to someone in missouri or in north dakota on a you know uh, harvest per hunter per year you care about your harvest relative to your past experiences and what you what you have become accustomed sure. to i completely yeah. understand that and that's reasonable that's what we should expect yeah yeah um if there's a species that's more finicky about nesting than than other species, which would that be and why? Like I've heard maybe pintails, if they don't find the right habitat, they just keep going, they'll just keep going north and then eventually just not even nest. I don't know if that's true, but I'm sure you have a lot more insight on that than I could ever hope to. Pintails are probably the best example uh, that, that I'm going to be able to come up with. Uh, right off the top of my head. I'm not as familiar with the, the finickiness of some of the diving duck species, but certainly within the dabbling duck group, pintails are going to be the one uh, that, that stand out because they have a pretty narrow, uh, what we call a search image for the type of habitat that they prefer to nest in. They like rather short grass, open landscapes, uh, and if they don't find that, yeah, you're right. They will, um, they will overfly. They will fly to the prairies. We have seen some pretty massive shifts in, uh, in where pintails are settling in response to some massive changes in agricultural practices across the, the Canadian prairies over the past 30 or 40 years. Um, so yeah, pintails would be right there in terms of being finicky, and you contrast that with mallards and let's say blue wings. Blue wings are very pioneering. They'll move around and are rather, uh, their, their fidelity breeding site, their, the rate at which they return to the same nest site year after year is not as strong as, as other species of ducks. Um, they will pioneer out into newly, um, into different areas from one year to the next, uh, mallards, Kind of do the same mallards will nest anywhere there that's just what's so great about that. always i mean we know down here that blue wing are the first to arrive that's what we have in early teal season but i mean there's been times in march and april where i've been out on a golf course and seen tons of blue wing teal and so i also think they're the last to go back like if it's oh, warm yeah. here like uh we're just going to hang out in texas until it's too hot or i don't know what if if that's even really a thing for them but yeah they seem to they seem to stick around yeah then uh, they, well, it could be that the birds you're seeing in March or April are ones that are returning from Central and South America or the Caribbean. It may be that they haven't been on the Texas coast or in, uh, in Austin or wherever you are. Uh, it could be. Oh my God. Don't, I would never spend a day in Austin. I, I would spend <laughs> where, a day in Austin. Where you, but no, where you? That's like uh, the San Francisco of Texas. I would okay. you're talking well, to the wrong guy. <laughs> okay. Well, I wasn't sure where you were located there. But I'm, yes. the, I'm in the Dallas area. Okay. All right. So it, it very well could be that those birds that you're seeing are making their way back from Central America. We know that, that a lot of blue wings go to Central America, South America, the Caribbean. And so, yeah, it, it takes them a while to get back. Um, so, for sure. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I'm starting to think if there's anything else I wanted to ask you off the top of my head. I'm not sure if you have anything you wanted to add specifically. Well, um, we can pick up on that blue wing theme a little bit, you know, to sure. speak of in terms of the way things are changing, because uh, nobody's going to deny that, that 
the landscape has changed. We still have bang up bluing seasons. I mean, our early teal, if you go to the coast, is it's like mosquitoes, you know? It's a question of how fast do you want to shoot your limit? Do you want to enjoy it or do you want to be done in 10 minutes? You can take your pick. And the the other thing is that Louisiana, and I'm not as familiar with the Texas teal numbers, midwinter teal numbers, but Louisiana has seen an increase in uh, in in the number of teal that they're counting at midwinter. And so that w- could also be, um, you know, that's if we see a northward shift in blue wings, that's not because people are growing un- uh, growing unharvested corn in Louisiana. Right. You know, there's other things going on too with sure. some of these. And so um, it's, I get it. People like to point the finger at one thing because we want a single explanation, but there really are a lot of different things going on that are affecting distributions of waterfowl that we're seeing right now. Not just ducks, snow geese, white-fronted geese. I don't need to tell anybody in Texas about the changes that we've seen with snow oh, yeah. geese and white fronts. That's not linked to changes in, in flooding of unharvested corn or anything of that nature. Canada geese, also Texas, knows better than any other state. Well, maybe except some of the mid-latitude of Missouri, Illinois. But Texas was one of the first to see a change in Canada goose numbers you know, since we've been collecting a lot of data. None of that's related to ice eaters, unharvested corn, et cetera. Yeah. Ducks are responding to a lot of different things that have changed and will continue to change. And uh, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be frustrated. We shouldn't be um, wanting to understand what all is going on but it's it's what makes them fascinating and what it's what makes them yeah. frustrating but it's what kind of keeps us keeps us going out there one day after another and keeps keeps providing a lot of interesting research questions for sure mm-hmm. well and i want to just be clear i'm not blaming the the whole lack of duck numbers on short stopping ducks or farming yeah. ducks whatever you want to call yeah. it um yeah. I truly believe in my heart, like if we had a really cold winter, we'd have a bang up season, regardless of what anyone else is doing. Yeah. Like, I think if we get the weather, the ducks are going to come. They're still going to be here. Um, and so, yeah, I'm not, yeah. I just yeah. wanted to pick your brain on that because yeah. you know why? Because a lot of people say, they expect a lot of people are fired up about it. the question. Yeah. Right. No, I get so. it. I get it. So the other thing that has recently, I've talked with a few folks about is this issue of if, if it would only get cold. I know there's some folks over here um, that, well, there's there's a lot of talk and let's say you could even, you could lay it out as a hypothesis with regard to, all right, well, it's not just whether it gets cold, it's when it gets cold. Mm-hmm. For example, in February of last year, when we had that record cold, you know, like massive freeze, Texas lost all of its power and all that you oh, yeah. know, multiple multiple weeks of freezing or sub freezing temperature. We moved in with my sister in law because they were on a grid close to a hospital, so they didn't turn yeah. their, their power off. You know, yeah. and then we we're like three miles from them, and yeah, we lost. Yeah, we didn't have power for five days. Yeah. So with regard to waterfowl, with it being that cold and as much snow as there was, you would have predicted that ducks in Tennessee and Arkansas would have made big moves down to the coast of Louisiana or Texas, you know, if things are working exactly the way we think they do or thought they might uh, on the surface. But there's been Don't a little bit... Don't break my heart, Mike. Don't tell me that if it gets cold, we're still not going to have ducks. Well, <laughs> this was in February, remember? And so yep. what are ducks doing in February? They're gearing up to breed. They want to go back north. They want to get north as soon as possible. So we... I've worked with a few folks to look at some data to uh, transmitted mallards and a few other data sets and to see if we saw a move in February, move south among mallards in uh, in February of last year. We really didn't. There were a few that moved, but most of them hunkered down and and you know tried to tried to stay through until that uh, until it warmed up. So the question would be then, if we would have gotten that weather system in November, what would the ducks have done? You know, that's in November. That's when they're just coming down, just uh, just trying to find where, where it is that they're going to set up shop for winter. I would certainly predict that we would have seen a much different movement response in, let's say, November from such mm-hmm. a, a severe outbreak than we did in February. So it's not that we just needed to get cold. 
For us Southern hunters, at least the working hypothesis in the mind of a lot of us is that we need to get cold early mm. uh, in November, December and stay cold. So, yeah, I think I was, I might've been wearing shorts opening day of duck season this yeah. year. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I know. It was tough. It was tough. Uh, I was certainly in short sleeves at Christmas. Yeah. Um, was not, not happy about that, but yeah. let's see anything else on, well, I can, let's say maybe a quick look forward to how habitat conditions are shaping up for the, yeah. for the breeding season. Great. We've been keeping an eye on that. There is a short segment in this season in review report that does a little look forward um, to what drought conditions are. Drought conditions in the western U.S., which does produce some birds locally for hunters in the Pacific Flyway, Central Valley of California, Intermountain West, it's still really dry. Their, their drought is intensifying. It's not looking good at all in terms of the prospects for duck production in, in, in the western U.S. Um, the prairies of the U.S. and Canada have seen some relief from, from the drought that they were in last summer. Uh, eastern, as of right now, mid-March, there is, um, there is no drought in the eastern Dakotas. They received enough rain and snowfall over the over the past five six months to um, to eliminate the drought recover them from the drought in the eastern dakotas that stretches into southern manitoba a little bit um, western uh, western north dakota western south dakota montana and in southern portions of alberta and saskatchewan are still in pretty severe drought so we've gotten some relief in some parts of the prairie pothole region but we still need more, uh, still need some more snow between now and whenever the thaw is going to occur. And it would be great if we could get a, a dose of rain across the Canadian prairies um, between now and, and let's say uh, end of April. That would really, that would really help out a lot. Hmm. So we're still, we're, we're trending in the right direction. That's the, that's the good news, but we still need some more um, to yeah. get us uh, to a full recovery. Uh, well, at least we are trending upwards, so yeah, silver lining yeah. there. Um, and hopefully, we will have the uh, survey. Spring, survey, you know, it, that's such a valuable tool, and to just because of COVID, not have it for two years. Yeah, it, like you said, it's who knows, really. Yeah. It's hard to get a good handle on those those averages, those uh, populations compared to their long term averages. So yeah, uh, it'll be interesting to see. You know, hopefully we get that done and then it'll be interesting to look at those numbers. Well, yeah. And the last thing that we do have to mention, uh, and I'm so excited about it because it's coming to my backyard. It is the uh, DU Expo Ducks, as we like to call it. It was here last year and it was miserable because it was in, I think it was in July. My, I wonder what you, I wonder what, how you were going to describe it. <laughs> oh, well, there's no other way to describe it. It's, you're outside at Texas Motor Speedway in July. That was uh, a result of COVID and yeah. the original date was scheduled in April, which it is yeah. once again scheduled in April. It's actually taking place this weekend, the 8th, 9th, and 10th, and the weather looks like it's going to be perfect. Friday, Saturday, Sunday out at Texas Motor Speedway. Yeah. There's going to be um, industry leaders, whether you know, shotgun shell manufacturers, shotgun manufacturers, um, yeah. biologists like yourself. You'll, DU will have a conservation uh, tent, I believe. You guys will be doing seminars. Yep, we're going to be, yeah, we're doing a couple of things different this year at our, uh, well, one, the big thing different this year at our conservation tent that we're going to be doing is a series of seminars, a little 15-minute, 20-minute little presentation, and then questions from, from the audience. It'll be there in the tent. We're going to kind of just try to figure out how this, what the space is going to be like, but a number of different topics ranging from kind of what we've just talked about, season and review, and what are the habitat conditions on the prairies, Ducks Unlimited's conservation work in Texas. I'm going to have Texas Parks and Wildlife uh, staff there to talk about the midwinter survey, to talk about harvest regulations. We've got a number of seminars uh, planned. And let me give a plug for the, the shooting range that, that we have yeah. there at DUX. That was the most enjoyable and fascinating thing for me because you were able to go to all these different gun manufacturers or vendors and try out any of the guns, pistols, shotguns, rifles that you wanted to try. Um, they, yeah, where else can you do that? that well, I, I don't know, but it was, yeah. uh, I'm not aware of it if you are, but it was um, 
I mean, hundreds, if not thousands of different guns that you could try uh, a dollar, I mean, uh, maybe a dollar uh, uh, for one round of ammo or something like that. I mean, ammo's not cheap, I guess, when you're mm -hmm. running through it that <laughs> these days. But uh, yeah, that alone is worth uh, worth the time to get there and, and come check out all the other stuff that's, uh, that's going to be there as well. It's a good time. Absolutely. And it'll be, hopefully it'll be cooler. It'll be nice, yeah. no doubt. I want to encourage everybody to, if you're not a member of DU, I don't know what you're waiting for. Um, I've been on the Dallas committee for, I think, 10 years or so, 11 years. Thank you. Um, and I'm not tooting my own horn. It's like you meet cool people that are passionate about the same thing that you are. And it feels good at the end of, like our big thing, obviously, is our banquet um, to say, hey, we raised $300,000 for waterfowl conservation. You know, that's... Um, it's validation. Hey, the, I'm passionate about these birds, this sport. What can I do? How can I get plugged in with a, gr a good yeah. group of guys and gals that, uh, that, that appreciate it as well. And, uh, and there's, there's, there's chapters all over the country. So yeah. wherever you're listening, there's one probably in your backyard. Uh, and then also check out the DU podcast. Mike's the co-host of, uh, of that broadcast as well. And uh, appreciate your time as always, man. Yeah, thank you, Cable. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for volunteering as uh, um, on that on the DU chapter there. Oh, I, it's just like it's, part of what I do. I, it's, I love it. I wouldn't, yeah. uh, I wouldn't miss it. So. I, know, I know a lot of DU staff participate as volunteers on a lot of those committees as well. And I know we're all just blown away uh, and just humbled at the dedication and the time and the investment of investment of time and all your other expertise that our volunteers put forward to, to DU and, and the broader mission. I, I honestly... DU staff really are humbled to recognize that there are people out there that care so much about this resource as we do and that they volunteer their time and their um, their time and treasure, as our CEO likes to say, um, for this greater cause. So thanks to you, Cable. Thanks to everybody out there that's listening to this and watching this that uh, that is a DU member or DU volunteer. No, absolutely. It's all, I mean, I can speak for everyone. It's our pleasure. And uh, we, we do it willingly and, and look forward to that time. So. Um, okay, Mike. Well, thanks again, my friend. I hope that you have a great spring. And I don't know if you hunt turkeys, but if you do, hopefully you'll uh, smack a big long beard. Yeah, thanks, man. You too. So there you have it. Uh, Ducks Unlimited Chief Waterfowl Scientist, a longtime friend of the program, Dr. Mike Brazier. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Campfire Conversations. Until next time, I'm Cable Smith. Y'all have a great week in the outdoors. <laughs>